Friends, before we start today, I just wanted to tell you today is the 100th episode of the Wealth and Law podcast. I cannot thank you enough for listening, participating, giving me your comments and thoughts, uh, subscribing, just being great human beings in general. It's been fun to do the podcast. This is not the end of the podcast. Uh, I'm going to keep doing them well beyond 100 episodes, uh, but I thought on this milestone, it'd be worthwhile to just pause, think about it. Uh, it's something that I started in April uh, 2020. It was not really done because of the pandemic. I was thinking about doing the podcast anyways. At the time, I was thinking about doing a lot more blogging and writing, but I discovered along the way that doing a podcast was, number one, a lot easier than doing blogging because I didn't necessarily have to sit down and scrutinize over my writing like I do when I do sit down and, and write something. So it was a little bit easier, um, but also it was just such a great window and a, and a great way for me to reach out and talk to interesting, compelling people about topics that I really enjoy. Um Hopefully you enjoy these topics and that's why you're listening to the podcast or you don't, but at least you're getting something out of the conversations. And if that's the case, then this has been a success for me. So my main focus 100% is on the listener of the podcast, getting something valuable out of it and learning something because I'm learning things along the way. I don't know everything. And so I often rely on conversations and speaking with people who are smarter than I am on lots of different topics. And there are many in which there are people who are smarter than I am uh, on all, all variety of topics. Uh, and that's the way that I, that I learn a lot. And so I hope I'm able to share that a bit with you. I hope you're getting something out of the podcast and enjoying it. But I cannot thank you enough for, for participating by listening and subscribing and doing all the things that you, you folks do. It's, uh, it's an extreme pleasure for me to have been able to do this many episodes. And it really uh, it, it heartens me to know that these things can be done and they can be done efficiently and over a long period of time because I want it to go on for a very long period of time. So I'm really looking forward to the future and a lot of exciting and fun conversations that we're going to be having in the future. And I have some planned and I hope that uh, you enjoy them when they come out. So with that uh, and no further ado, I will let you listen to this week's 100th episode of the Wealth and Law podcast. Please enjoy. This is the Wealth and Law podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and I am joined by special guest today, Rita Pepoff. Ritu Pepoff, I'm sorry, Ritu. Um, Ritu is a... Senior Vice President at Northern Trust and also a professor at the Northwest uh, School of Law, you know, it's a which is a fine school of law if you can't get into Texas Tech University School of Law. So <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that either you could matriculate into Texas Tech or you have to teach at a lowly school like Northwestern. But uh, Ritu, it's thank tough. you very we much. All, we all do what we have to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> We sure do. Yeah, we all survive in our own way. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very glad to be here. I've got my coffee right here, so I'm ready to go this morning. Thank you. Excellent. You're you're appropriately prepared then. <laughs> right. um, well, for the few people that don't know who you are and, and uh, can't rely on the terrible summary that I just gave, can you give people maybe at least a high-level summary of your background? Sure. Uh, so I'm Ritu Pepoff. I am a senior vice president and assistant general counsel in the legal department at the Northern Trust Company in Chicago. Um, in this role, I advise Northern's fiduciary practice on a wide variety of trust issues, ranging from accepting appointment as trustee um, to issues around trust administration to resignations and termination. So it's pretty broad. Uh, my particular focus is on advising Northern in conflicts of interest matters. So where it is acting in both a banking capacity and in a fiduciary capacity, I will oftentimes get involved in advise Northern on ways to mitigate conflicts of interest. Um, I also spend uh, some time advising on foreign and directed trusts, particularly for Northern's Delaware affiliate, the Northern Trust Company of Delaware. And then I also spend a fair amount of time supervising fiduciary litigation, um, whether Northern is a named party or just an interested party. Um, before joining Northern, I was a trust administrator at a, another financial institution for a number of years. And then prior to that, I was an associate attorney at a law firm in Chicago. So my career has sort of allowed me to see all sides of trusts and estates from the planning to day-to-day -day administration to now advising a corporate fiduciary. So I've sort of seen it all at this point, full circle. Yeah. <laughs> and teaching law students, which is a whole nother well, yes. area. Yep. So I'm also an adjunct professor at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, where I teach international estate planning to LLM students. So very dry course, um, but surprisingly, students register. So um, I am doing that this semester. It's typically taught in the spring. Uh, so I'm teaching this semester and I've taught a few semesters now. So, yeah. yeah. So you you surprise yourself even when people sign up for that class. I, I am always a bit surprised. And then also just how engaging students are. Um, mm. It, it tends to be a really great class and there's a lot of practical considerations. So I really enjoy it. I'm fortunate to be able to teach there. Yeah, I um, selfishly would say that that sounds like an amazing class uh, <laughs> for only the brightest and best of us in this area of practice. <laughs> right. And somehow I managed to squeeze in. So go figure. <laughs> well, the reason um, I wanted to chat with you today, aside from all of those things and all of which are topics that I'm keenly interested in and would love to talk about on another day, um, is that aside from your uh, normal, I'll say normal day to day working slash family slash professorial duties, um, you also write, and you you wrote recently for the Act Tech Journal uh, an excellent article about racial inequality and estate planning. Anybody who you know is looking for it, they can sort of search for it in the Act Tech Journal. If you can't find it, you know, just like sit and you're looking for it, just send me an email and I'll send you a copy of the article. But um, it's it raised a lot of really interesting and thought provoking. Um, things for me, and I thought it'd be worthwhile to discuss. We don't necessarily need to read the article here uh, on the podcast, but I thought maybe it'd be um, interesting to talk about the issues you you raise in your article from the almost from the perspective of like or the structure of like a legal brief. You know, legal brief 
in law school, you're told you have to you have to state the issue and then you have to kind of state the law or sort of the context of the issue and then give your analysis of what the conclusion is based on those filters. And I think your article sort of sets up that way. And I think it's a, it's a topic that could be addressed that way. I think that's exactly right. And that's exactly how I approach the article is just to make very clear what the issue is in my perspective and why we should care about this issue. Why does this matter? And then ways that we could potentially address the issue. Um, you know, what prompted me to write this is really my background. My family is originally from India. My parents, my sister and I moved to the United States in 1980. Uh, my sister and I were the first generation to be raised in the U.S. So growing up, we sort of had to straddle two worlds, right? The American culture and the Indian culture. And that can be really tough, particularly particularly in adolescent years. Um, so seeing the world from two different perspectives, day in and day out, and living that immigrant experience sort of made me heightened to racial issues. So addressing racial injustices is something that I've always been passionate about. And it's really, it's it, it's in that backdrop of an immigrant experience that I've always been interested in racial equality as a whole. So when the opportunity to write about ways to modernize our practice, to modernize trust in states came up, I really thought about whether racial inequality is something I wanted to raise. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. I'm sort of waffling on whether I should do this. Um, you know, it doesn't really have have any technical components. It could be a sensitive issue for some people. But then I really decided that I wanted to highlight these issues for estate planners who just may not have considered estate planning through this lens. It's just offering a different perspective. And, um, you know, I think just we as natural humans think about these things, think about racial injustice, but now to try to apply it not only in a social context, but in a professional one as well is important. Yeah, completely agree. And and I think it's a you're you're completely right that it's a topic that uh, can trigger very uh, emotional responses in people. I think that's obvious to anybody who's been uh, aware of what's happened in the U.S. in the last two years, at least. You know, only going back two years, let alone uh, the entire duration of the history of the country and and beyond. But um, you know, in the context of estate planning specifically, there are just quite clear factual gaps in the use of estate planning and the outcomes of estate planning. So do you want to maybe kind of tee that up and then maybe we can drill into that a little bit? Yeah. So I think just very broadly, as, as trust and estates practitioners, we know that it can be difficult to get clients to execute a estate plan. And so we talk about ways in which we might be able to facilitate those conversations. I think when we start adding the additional layer of minorities or what I define as BIPOC, which stands for Black Indigenous People of Color, and really just means people who are not white Americans. Um, when we think about it from that context, you know, the statistics are, are pretty bleak. And so I think the issue that I really wanted to raise is minorities or BIPOCs are not executing estate plans. So we need to think about why is this happening? And I don't think you can point to just one particular reason why that's the case. I think it's a multitude of factors. Um, one is just pure and simple procrastination, right? People don't want to think about themselves dying. It makes them uncomfortable and potentially deal with issues that they just don't 
want to deal with. And so we see this with all sorts of clients. Um, I think the other reason, uh, maybe this notion, again, that is across the board, that I don't have enough money to have an estate plan. And that's just for rich people, whatever that term may be. And so estate planning really starts to become synonymous with minimizing taxes for the wealthy. But we know that, you know, the trust and estates practitioners who are in this field know that there's so much more to an estate plan just than just the tax portion. Um, so I think it's also demystifying this whole process of an estate plan. But I think what what makes it unique for BIPOCs in particular is this, the root of the issue, in my opinion, is the distrust of the system and believing oftentimes incorrectly that my family will just know what to do. They know what I want, even when there hasn't been a single discussion on the topic. And my parents were an example of that. My parents never executed an estate plan until I got into this profession. Uh, and when I talked to them about, you know, why, why is that? Just like you, you guys know, you guys know what we want, you know, it, it'll be fine. And there's this sort of silence about um, the transfer of assets that, you know, there are cultural implications that are involved. And so I think it just it's really difficult to get BIPOCs or minorities to really think about these things and frame it in a structure that they might not just be comfortable with. Um, so I think that it, it's an issue that is particularly prevalent in BIPOC communities. And so really the, the goal is to make practitioners aware of it, um, why, why we think that might be the case, because only when we understand why it exists can we sometimes then uh, think of tools to address those issues. Yeah, um, and, and, I think, and I think that's a really interesting point that there are some, there are cultural hurdles. Um, some of those cultural hurdles, I think, then if you're sort of thinking about, you know, what's the root cause of these, these hurdles, it may be a, a misunderstanding of the quote system, but I think in some in some cases, it probably is uh, cultural norms that are informed by the interaction with the system that has not always been very favorable, uh, some of which I think we'll get into, such as um, partition actions and there, there are other uh, types of actions uh, relating to like tax liens specifically to to real property that have been sort of systemic uh, mechanisms that uh, divest wealth from primarily from lower income and therefore BIPOC communities. And that sort of interaction with the quote system probably doesn't uh, do a lot of favors to trusting the system then when it comes to passing on property at death. So there's a lot, I think there's a lot of hurdles and a lot of layers to it that are difficult and different depending on the community that you're dealing with. I think that's exactly right. And I think we see this most commonly with tenants in common structure. And, you know, when you when you rely on the laws of intestacy in any given state, it could not only transfer assets away from the people who you may really want to inherit them, but it also controls the ownership structure of those assets. And so with a tenant in common structure, each tenant has an undivided right to the property. It's not a 50-50% interest. And so what that means then is that interest can be sold to a buyer, uh, most oftentimes developers, and then the developers can go into court and force a partition sale. And the reality of it is that these predatory practices exist so frequently that, in fact, it's, it's resulted in the enactment of the Uniform Partition of Heirs Property Act, which, among other things, requires independent appraisals of the property. It gives the remaining co-tenants right of first refusal to buy the interest um, in the property. And so it really has historically been an issue where you have unintended consequences that only serve to widen the wealth gap between 
between um, white Americans and BIPOCs. Uh, and so statistics have shown that white Americans not only have more earning power that then translates to a higher income stream, but then studies also show that white Americans are more likely to receive an inheritance compared to BIPOC households. So it's, it's a real issue. And I would also say that even when you compare households that have similar income stream, since wealth, we all know, is made up of your income minus your debts and expenses, that wealth gap still exists. So these are issues that we really, as trust and estates practitioners, need to get in front of and making sure that we are doing everything that we can to uh, try to get to try to alleviate some of these concerns. You know, there's sort of this humanitarian desire to make sure that everyone's got equal opportunity. Um, but I think from a very pragmatic standpoint, we also need to be aware of the current demographic trends in the U.S. as they relate to BIPOCs, right? It's estimated that by 2045, BIPOCs will actually be the majority in the U.S. So what does that mean for trust and estates practitioners? Well, the combined economic buying power for BIPOC will be pretty substantial, and this will only bleed into other areas of civic engagement. Um, there will be more minority business owners, more minority CEOs. So it's it's inevitable purely from a numbers perspective. I mean, we're coming in fast and furious, and the reality is there just will simply put be more of us. And so we need to start thinking about these issues. Um, the other thing that I have I've found that we need to also look at it from an investment perspective. More and more clients are interested in learning about socially responsible investing, SRI, or environment social governance investing, ESG investing. And so for someone who might not be familiar with that kind of investment strategy, what it does is it tries to align a client's own personal values with financial performance. So a client will, will choose to invest in certain companies companies that he or she values, like uh, clean energy, uh, technology, racial justice. And the focus behind this investment strategy is not necessarily the rate of return, but rather how the company is run and what the company stands for. Although I will say that studies have shown that ESG investing can have the same rate of return, if not better, than some more traditional investments like mutual funds. So I think at a minimum, trust and estates practitioners should be aware of these investment options because it's getting more and more publicity and clients really want to effectuate change and they do that in various ways and one way that we're seeing a lot of impact is through this ESG investing. Yeah and just there's a lot of that uh, that you just mentioned that uh, I think we can unpack so you know to, to take two, two steps back the the idea of a partition sale and, and the prevalence of partition sales as it might relate to somebody receiving property through intestacy meaning somebody died without a will which I think the statistics that you shared were something like 76% of black families don't have a will. Uh, and the percentages are, st are still quite high for white families, but the gap is enormous between uh, between the two groups. So if you imagine like you and I are, are siblings and mom and dad die and they leave us the house, which is the most valuable asset that they owned, despite the, the condition of the house, and it's 50-50 between us tenants in common, I can go sell my tenants in common interest to a developer, probably at a discount, uh, you know, say I, I have some sort of economic distress in my life, and then the developer can show up in court and require that the house be sold at an auction at which, of course, the developer is going to show up with their cash or their liquidity, and they're going to stamp up the property. And so you've lost as a family unit, you've lost the property for, in essence, less than its fair market value. More than likely, you're not going to get full value at the, the auction. 
because it's not an it's not a real sale it's sort of a fire sale then right. you could, I think that's a really important point is that property is being sold at less than fair market value mm-hmm. than if you know the owners themselves had gone out and tried to market the property and so that again only feeds into this wealth gap that we're seeing that's so prevalent in the United States right and I, one of the other statistics that you share that was amazing is that in New Mexico among Hispanic families, the estimate is that they have lost something like 1.6 million acres to partition sales historically, uh, which is just mind boggling. Uh, so it, it's it's small cuts that then add up to a lot. And then those sorts of diminishments in wealth uh, tend to start showing up in the statistics, obviously, and, and the statistics are pretty pretty clear. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned is just the change in demographics, but actually the change in demographics does not necessarily mean a diminishment um, in, or it doesn't necessarily mean, that, uh, sorry, this this change in, the, in wealth or the sort of cutting away at wealth does not necessarily translate into uh, as, a, as a group, BIPOC groups not having tremendous economic pull because they do have tremendous economic pull. And I, again, I think the statistic that you suggested was something like 3.9 trillion dollars of spending power, which is amazing. And we're we're as of course that's going to continue to increase as there are more people of those communities as a proportion of the population in the U.S. And we're as I was thinking about this after reading your article, we're as close to 2045 when statistically this change is supposed to happen as we are to 1999. Yeah, that's pretty scary when you put it that way. It's around the corner. Right. I mean, it 2045 just feels so far away, but it, you're absolutely right. It's really not. Um, I, You know, time is flying by. We're in 2022. Uh, you're absolutely right. It, it sort of suggests that it's really far into the future, um, but it's but you're absolutely right. It is just around the corner. So what do you think um, practitioners can do to try to address it? You mentioned, well, you mentioned the ESG, which I think is really interesting because you could imagine, for example, a client who's doing estate planning who has a very firm desire to be invested in ESG or socially responsible initiatives, and you could write that into a document. You know, you could say that the preference in in investing is aside from maybe diversification to be invested in those sorts of funds. So you can direct it in the document. That's easy to do. You just have to say it. Um, but what other sorts of things do you think practitioners can do to try to help bridge both of these gaps? You know, the gap between people who have had access or do have estate plans and then the gap between the estate plans matching up with their their social or other initiatives? That's a great question. So you just mentioned, you know, drafting specific ESG provisions in the trust agreement, which is absolutely true. But before that step, before you even get to that point, I think estate planners have to have conversations about these issues with clients to even get to that point where those provisions are drafted. So it's not necessarily the client bringing up the issues, but rather estate planners bringing up the issue and initiating those conversations. And, you know, there are various questionnaires that can um, help guide clients to start thinking about how they've generated their wealth, uh, what sort of values do they want to pass down to future generations to have just a really robust conversation about 
the values that they want. And I think that will then trigger an appropriate estate plan that could potentially have ESG language or SRI provisions in the trust agreement. Um, I think also it's just quite frankly really important for trust and estates practitioners to actively pursue BIPOC communities as clients. Um, and that may be just a very simplified estate plan, um, or it could be an estate plan uh, for up and coming professionals that are, you know, structured so that they it's evolved to grow as uh, young professionals accumulate their wealth and grow their family, um, targeting minority business owners uh, to see if they have succession plans in place. Um, and then also partnering with financial advisors or other professional organizations that sort of seek to do the same thing, start, you know, networking outside the box a little bit. Um, I also think that uh, there are resources for estate planners themselves on how to have sensitive conversations as we all start to recognize our own implicit biases. This is a topic that is um, that's very prevalent these days is how do we recognize our own implicit biases in our day to day actions? And again, I think a lot of that has to translate into our professional roles as well. And Harvard uh, University has a program called Project Implicit that helps people identify their own implicit biases. There's a number of tools that estate planners can take to make sure that they're having these conversations in a way that will lead to productive outcomes. Um, but, but I also think that estate planners have to demonstrate diversity, equity, and inclusion within their own law firms as well, right? You can talk the talk, but you have to walk the walk as well. And so one way to do this is to actively recruit at a historically black college and university. I'm a graduate of an HBCU. I graduated from Howard University School of Law. So this is a really important way to tap into pipeline for talent. Um, and I also want to mention that firms should really consider participating in Mansfield Rule, which is run by the Diversity Lab. And it's a program that helps law firms diversify leadership at the top level, um, making sure that we've got accurate and appropriate representation at executive committee levels. And so there's definitely opportunities for estate planners to really take an active role in this area. Um, you know, we're best positioned to address lack of estate planning. And I think when you start to think about it through this racial lens and really make it an intentional and deliberate process, we can move the needle ever so slightly, but we'll all be better for it. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. It's uh, it's almost an ex there are external things that you can do and then internal things that you can do, you know, maybe uh, external things like you're mentioning, which I love, which is a great suggestion of sort of mixing up your, your networking uh, networks, so to speak, and make sure that you're reaching out to groups that are slightly outside of your, your normal uh, your normal route or your normal circuit. And it's not that difficult to do. I think anybody in this profession is certainly on the private side or on business development side. You know how it's done. You've done it in the past. So it's easy to to replicate that in slightly different contexts. I think also focusing in on um, not just those clients, but also focusing in on issues that relate to those clients um, is key. So for example, my we were I was somewhat joking about 
the international estate planning thing and how I, I could certainly talk to you about that. Well, that's that's a big part of my practice. Well, that means that I have to be sensitive to issues that are specific to people from different places. So a client from Canada is not the same as a client from Mexico, is not the same as a client from South Africa. Um, they have There are different cultural concerns, different ideas about the world, different ways to view things, and you have to kind of force yourself to learn about it so that you can then serve people from that community. Um, and I think it's, I think your point about recruiting is so important. When I go to uh, meetings, so like you're the chair of STEP, when I go to a STEP meeting, I'm in the, the Orange County, California branch. So when I go to that branch meeting and I look around the room, the composition of the room, no slight to anybody who's there, everybody I really enjoy uh, is not consistent with the composition of the the broader populace. And I think you, if you're being introspective, have to ask yourself why, and then ask yourself whether that's a healthy way to move forward, given the statistics and the demographics that are obvious and and that are coming. And and there's only one way to do it. It's bring more people in. I think that's exactly right. And look, the reality of it is for some people, it's going to be a very natural progression. But for others, it will be something that has to be deliberate and intentional and on the forefront of their minds and just may not be natural to no fault of their own. But I think it's sort of twofold. Number one, being aware of the issue, right? You look around the room, for example, just like you mentioned, and you start to notice these differences whereby maybe you might not have noticed them 10, 15 years ago, but you're starting to notice these differences. And then I think the second component is what can we do in this field to help shift this a little bit. Um, and look, we're not going to solve, you know, racial inequity, but we all can do a little bit more, particularly when it comes to estate planning in BIPOC communities. But I, to me, I think that's kind of the point is most, uh, I think most racial issues or in any sort of inequity issue, it's not necessarily um, limited to race, but most inequity type issues um are really solved on an individual by individual basis. And that's why they're so uncomfortable because they force you to confront the fact that perhaps you in some way, whether whether or not historically, uh, are part of the problem. You know, if you're if you're not taking some action to try to change yourself or change the outcomes that you are creating, then you're actually just perpetuating the problem if the problem exists. And I think that's what's so hard about it. But it's also what is so empowering about it is that yeah, you can do something. You do not have to go change individually all of the inequity that exists in the entire country, let alone the world. All you have to do is focus on yourself initially. And I think right. that's the key. I think, yes, I think that's right. And Charles Hamilton Houston, um, who, is a civil, who was a civil rights activist um, in the hallways of Howard, I mean, his quotes are just all around the building. And one quote that always stuck out to me from being a 1L little law, stu law student to now is a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. And so we all can do better, all of us. Um, and so I, I do think that there is an obligation in this profession to make sure that we are making sure that there are equal opportunities for everyone, no matter what that inequality may be, that we just strive to do a little bit better. Yeah. And if I can toot the horn of people in our profession, I think we're well placed to be extremely impactful just because we have our hands on and we understand the systems of wealth that exist in the world. Like we literally have our hand on the steering wheel of 
the system of wealth. And we can sort of see where there are gaps and we can kind of try to strengthen where there are gaps that could help to bridge this divide. So let me give you an example of this. This is not a this is not a critique. This is a, meant constructively, okay? So it's not a critique of you, just by, by way of warning, you don't have to worry about that. So um, when when the protests were happening after George Floyd's death, we were kind of looking around and it, it got me thinking about the organizations that were organizing the protests and the Black Lives and that were supporting the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. And so I thought, well, I don't know what I you know, there's not a lot that I can do uh, to assist those organizations necessarily, but I'm assuming that they run like normal organizations on money. Like that's the thing that every organization, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, runs on. So I was looking up some of these organizations. I was surprised to find that very few of them, at least on their websites, this was then, I don't know if it, it still exists today, um, actually had planned giving resources. So like I literally went through like and I made this list of all these organizations that did not have planned giving anywhere on their uh, on their websites. And some of these were major uh, organizations in that movement, Color of Change, the Movement of Black Lives. NAACP Legal Defense Fund was an exception. They're quite a quite a well-structured organization, but Black Alliance for Just Immigration, Black Lives Matter itself. Uh, if you go to blacklivesmatter.com, it doesn't necessarily have or didn't at the time have planned giving on the website that you could sort of sign up for or learn about, uh, Blackout Collective, Freedom Inc., Jobs with Justice, like lots of the main um, charitable organizations. When I sort of went through and did this little informal audit, they didn't have it. And it made me think like, oh, that's a that's an area of the world that people of our ilk know a lot about. And you could add value to those groups and say, hey, you need money. Like I get you have a, there's an acute issue right now today, but I'm assuming that this is not going to be resolved in the next year or two or 10 or 20. And so you have to start thinking about strategically, how do you start building the source of funds that will sustain this over decades? And it's usually done by a lot of planned giving and then constant money raising every year. But the planned giving piece was missing. And I, and what that says to me and just further illustrates how much opportunity there is for trust and states practitioners to do something in this area, right? I mean, just the organizations that you mentioned and reaching out and making sure that they have a structure in place um, to continue that movement um, and making sure that they're thinking about these issues uh, from a legal perspective and and how you can just continue to support these organizations. With the recent tragedies, the killing of Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, you mentioned George Floyd, uh, the dramatic rise in Asian hate crime that we're seeing. I mean, the American culture is certainly shifting towards some some pretty strong activism. And I think that we should all consider about how that impacts us in our roles and that ways that we might be supportive of those issues. Yeah, I think that's it. It's the not to not to necessarily say that I'm citing myself as the source of my uh, or the uh, support for the the accuracy of my own conclusion, but I I do think that the, uh, the the individual nature of the solutions is is the reality. And as I say, I think people in our in our profession are actually better placed in many times to assist, certainly from like the legal kind of structural strategic side of things um, than other people, because you really get like you were talking about the the many different roles that you've played and, and many different perspectives that you've had. Well, that means that you really get a full picture of like how the world works on the money side and the, the wealth side and 
and to a degree like the business side of things. And that's a hugely valuable perspective. Yeah, there's a lot of tools out there in the toolbox. And so I think we need to be aware of them and find one that's comfortable for each of us. Uh, you know, it's not going to be a one size fits all approach, but I think the point is to give estate planners some opportunities where they might be impactful in this area and in, in a way that they are comfortable with. Look, everybody's got different political views, different sides of the spectrum. Wherever you may fall, there are ways where I think we can all agree that racial injustice exists and what can we do about it in the estate planning community. And so the idea is to give practitioners some tools in their toolbox to to figure out ways that they're comfortable with. But I also think that as estate planners, we have to put our own values aside. When we're counseling clients, we need to get at what the root of the client's values are. And so we have to be open to having those conversations and making sure that well, we are well-versed in those areas like the investment portion, the organizations that you've named, um, to give clients opportunities to structure an estate plan that really reflects those values. Yep. Perfect. Well, I guess one of the other components to that then is that uh, uh, Ritu, it means you and I have to keep talking about these issues until people decide that they're going to maybe do something about it. So I would be happy to. <laughs> Every day, all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I and I think one of the other, you know, sometimes I there's I think there's a, a resistance to this kind of topic from an economic perspective. You know, there's sort of a you know water will run, we'll take the path of least resistance, which is towards lot, you know, in our in our profession, which is towards lots of money, which tends to be white male Christians. Um, but the reality is that there's enormous. There's also enormous economic opportunities for practitioners who really pursue this course. And it's not a black and white either or proposition. You can pursue this kind of course and have a thriving and very satisfying career at the same time. I completely agree. And I think not to be morbid, but, you know, the or older mentality, that older generation is going to phase out. And we're really coming up on just a new generation of activism and the way that people think, and that's going to bleed into all sorts of areas, including the law. And so I think the more that we can get in front of it, um, the more better off we will all be for it. And so it's really just making sure that we are considering these issues and finding solutions that make us all feel comfortable while really keeping in mind the end game, right? Which is ultimately to make sure that everyone has an estate plan. And so my only ask is that we look at it also from the perspective of BIPOC communities in particular. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you lending your, your time and expertise to this topic. It's been very informative and interesting for me. If people are trying to reach you, what's the easiest way for them to reach you? Um, that's a great question. Um, I am happy to provide my email address. It's not intuitive. Um, <laughs> um, it is rp, as in Peter, 176 at ntrs.com. Um, I'd be happy to talk to anyone about this topic. Um, I, I do think that it definitely deserves conversation. And I really appreciate you, Brent, for, you know, allowing me to speak on your podcast about this really important topic. So thank you. That's uh, my pleasure. Uh, of course, I'll, I'll include your contact information in the show notes too. So anybody trying to 
find Ritu can find her there. If you can't find her there, just reach out to me. I'll connect you. Uh, happy to do that too. But uh, as I say, I'm just absolutely humbled that anybody uh, would spend any amount of time with me. So I really appreciate your time today, Ritu. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.